0: So let's get into our series. We're doing a series called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. I love this series because this series is all about your questions. Last month we gave an opportunity as what is the one thing you want to hear shared at church? What is the one thing you want to hear? So this is, this is a series where you ask a question and we will faithfully respond to whatever questions you ask. And we're we'll doing this for a few years. I love it. Every year we always get the rapture in times. And so that's going to be answered near the end of the month. Um, So today I'm going to faithfully respond to four questions. I like to say respond rather than answer. That's kind of when when I say I'm answering as if I have all the knowledge I don't, but I'm going to faithfully respond according to the word of God. So are you ready for the first question? Let's get straight into it. The first question is generational curses. There you go. Let's just start there, shall we? Generational curses. This is, this is something that I've addressed many times I, uh, when I did the series on the Ten Commandments, the Ten, uh, addressed it there as well as at the end of last year, we did a series called Revealing the Unchanging God during that series as well. So let's get to the question, generational curses. How do you know it is a generational curse? How do we stop this? How many times do you have to pray or repent or change for these things to stop? Now, this concept, generational curses, it's, it's mentioned by those who, who interpret Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and it's repeated again in Exodus 34, verse 7. They interpret it in a way where it means that the consequences of sin may extend beyond the individual who committing, who's committing the sin, and that can affect future generations. Meaning, if I do something, if I sin, that I can pass on my sin to future generations. This is the concept of generational curse, all the sins of the father. Have you heard of that? So therefore, if I'm afflicted by something, it's because of some of my ancestors did something, and I need to repent of what they did. That's this concept. Now, in my opinion, that's a simplistic way of interpreting the scripture. It's one that I don't, I don't hold I don't hold, I'm not just me, but uh, many other biblical scholars also. In fact, most biblical scholars um, also hold, uh, hold the same same view that I hold. Um, so let's just, let's just get into this and let's get into where this this idea of generational curse comes from. And it first appears in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And it says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay, so this is the Ten Commandments. God giving the Ten Commandments, and this is the second command. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is where this idea of generational curse comes from. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Right, And straight there you're like, okay, wait, so that means if I do something, does that mean that that my kids are going to be punished because of what I did down to the fourth generation? you know, um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loyal love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you can see how we, we can fall into this idea of this generational curse idea, but let's break it down. Now the term third and fourth is a Hebrew idiom that means as long as it takes. Hebrew idiom, and just to understand what idiom is, it's a it's figurative language that we use to describe things. Like for instance, break a leg, or it's raining cats and dogs, right? It's not actually raining. It's it's a language. It's an idiom that we use that we understand. And likewise, this is an idiom. Third and fourth, I mean, as long as it takes. And so, this commandment was a warning, was warning Israel from the consequences of idolatry. Because if you're going to worship an idol, it's going to affect your children. And so, what what it's saying is that whatever habits you have. You'll pass it on to your kids. If you start worshipping idols, guess what your kids are going to do? Start worshipping idols as well. It's not a curse passed down generationally. But what it is, is that God holds each generation accountable for their own sin. So I'm not held accountable for something that my dad did. I'm held accountable to what I did. Now, if he did something and I've repeated it, it's not because of what he did, it's because I did it. So I'm held accountable. But it's also also, empowering as well which means that I can choose the very best for my life today. Just because my father did it, I can make a decision to, to turn that around. That I'm not, a, 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 who I am today is not because, oh, you don't know, understand this is what I grew up in. This is where I'm from. Of course, I'm not going to su- succeed. Of course, I'm going to go down to this life of crime. Well, you can make a, you can make a decision. You can take the responsibility yourself as that, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not who I am. Or like to go up in our families where, where, um, where uh, family violence is, is, is real, right? And then, um, but you can repeat the sins of the father or you can make a decision that that stops with me. And that's what this power, it's, it's empowering, to, to, that gives you power, that you have the choice to choose. And so what I'm getting at is this, is this idea of generational curse. You know, your relationship, your relationship to God depends on your believing loyalty to him. It's based upon your faith in God, because God will show loyal love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. Believing loyalty—if if it's with Jesus—that's all you need. That's all you need. And I can prove this. I can prove this in the Book of Jeremiah, which talks about this. But I'm going to go to the New Testament just to to talk about this. Let's let's go to John chapter nine verse one. John chapter nine verse one. As Jesus was walking along. He saw a man who had been born blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It's this generational curse idea. Can you imagine this man all his life hearing whispers? of, oh, yeah, I bet you he's born blind because of something his dad did. Or maybe his grandfather, you know, that, that guy Jethro. I knew there was something wrong about him. Look, his grandson is now blind, right? Or, or, or you think, oh, did I do something wrong? Is this why I'm blind? Did I, did I sin when I was a child? What, what was it? Can you imagine the condemnation that you put yourself on? And Jesus begins to set that interpretation straight. And he says to his disciples, he says this, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. So you need to stop thinking that way. It's got nothing to do with generational curses. Then he, Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. I love this. And then Jesus heals him, sets interpretation straight. Then he heals him. See, you do not have a generational curse. You need to stop believing lies. Stop giving power to it. We give power to these things. Instead of giving a power over to it, go to the one who has all the power. That's Jesus. Nothing's more powerful than Jesus. No curse, No curse that someone's uttered over your family or over you. No curse is more powerful than Jesus. Jesus is all you need. So, even what I'm going through right now, you know, when I first ruptured my disc and I was painfully, like this, seven years ago, lying on the ground, I'm in tense pain. Oh, in fact, the MRI scan shows I was this close to being paralyzed. Tense pain. And John Booth, Pastor John Booth, he's gone to be with Jesus right now. He walks in and he prays over him, quick prayer says, Lord, heal him, Jesus, I take away his pain. Amen. He goes, See you later, pal. And I'm lying and he go, Yep, yeah, all good. And he leaves. And right then, all of a sudden, I get up and pain's gone set me free. And when I was in Raru, I was, I was struggling about coming back to New Zealand because of where well, we were going to have this building. and But I had this nerve issue in my neck, affecting all these. Don't, don't play contact sports in your 40s. Just don't do that. I had nerve issues in my arm and God heals, heals me in Rauru. To, um, um, to, he gave me a vision of this place and God heals me to show me. And now when this happens, and I, and I ruptured the left side, I'm lying on the ground in pain. He says, Lord, name of Jesus, let's pray for healing right now. You've done it before, do it again. First day goes by, I'm lying on the floor crying in pain. Day two goes by, I'm lying on the floor in pain. Day three goes by and I'm at nighttime and I'm like, help me, Jesus. Help. Nothing. Day four go by, no healing. I'm tempted to think, where are you, God? I thought you loved me. Where is your power? But you know what? I was like, Lord, whether I get healing or not, I'm going to praise you and give you honor to show your power, to glorify who you are. And I began to worship God in my pain because I get to choose. I can choose to wallow in my sorrows or change the way I think and I will give glory and honor to God. This happened to me so I can honor God. And guess what? People started coming over to my house. I was lying flat on the, on the ground like, and then Matt, who's out with the youth, comes over, he lies on the ground with me in my pain he makes me laugh and i'm crying at the same time and we're one of the guys in our church he's a physio he comes over and does physio with me came during the first service you see me doing some physio exercises with him and and it showed me that god showed me like whether you're healing miraculously or not that my love is with you always through people and i praise god and give him give him honor why was this man born blind was it because of his own sins or his parents sins it was because of, not because of a sins, of his, of his parents or his sins. Jesus, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. I'm here to testify about the power of God in my life. Whether I have healing or not. Whether I'm in pain, I'll testify about the power of God in my life. Because we have the power to choose the very best in our life today. Amen? And that's all I've got to say about that. Okay, so Let's go to the second question. The second question is, it's all about... Torture and suffering, Revelations chapter 9, verse 5 to 6. Good old Revelations. Good question. How do you reconcile a loving God with torture and suffering? How do you reconcile a loving God with torture and suffering? The fact that this question was asked highlights the discrepancy that someone will feel when they read something like this because of what we know about God. We know that God is gracious. We know that He's compassionate. We, we know that he's slow to anger, loyal love um, that abound in loyal love and his faithfulness. And we know that when we read this about torture in some way, actually that doesn't make sense. And that causes us to dig a little deeper. Let's see what this passage means. So when it comes to inter- interpreting scripture, it's very, it's very good for us to understand the type of genre we're reading. Is it a letter? Because we apply rules. So like, think about when you, when you read things, you, you naturally apply rules to what you're reading. Well, is this fiction or is this non-fiction? Right? We know hobbits aren't real. Oh, there's hobbits running around, right? Because we, we apply rules. That's nonfiction. Or um, poetry. You know, her lips are strawberries. So I'm not saying it's a poetry. So therefore, it's figurative. I'm not saying her lips are actually strawberries. They're like sweet, like strawberries. You know, it's figurative. So we've got to apply that when we're reading the book of Revelation. And the type of genre Revelation is, is apocalyptic genre. Now, the problem with that is that we don't read apocalyptic genres anymore. In fact, it's been 2,000 years since we've had one, so we're not familiar with it. So I'm going to give you some rules when reading apocalyptic genre. In fact, revelation, the word revelation means apocalyptic or or, or, apocalypso. That's what revelation means. And what apocalypso means, it means to uncover, to reveal, right? It's not what we think of today, like end time movie. It it didn't mean that. It means like, for instance, if I've got food, got my food, it's been covered, then I'm going to Have a revelation. I'm revealing it. I'm doing an apocalypse. I'm not blowing up my food. I'm just revealing it. That's what this word means. And so some of the rules about that is that for apocalyptic literature is that it's very symbolic. Very symbolic that's not meant meant to be taken literally. It's symbolic, not meant to be taken literally. And also, especially with revelation, it's steeped in the Old Testament. So to understand these symbols is to understand how it's used in the Old Testament. Because pretty much all the symbols come from the Old Testament. So I always say to people, if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, just read the Old Testament about 50 times and you should have good grip of (laughs) the book of Revelation. And so anyway, with those rules in mind, let's get into the scripture. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, the abyss. The abyss. Verse 2, when he opened it, smoke poured out of this abyss as though from a huge furnace. So there's like fire. Fire. So your mind's already thinking about lake of fire, river fire from Daniel, fire coming out of this pit. <clears throat> and what, what do we also know about this pit? If you're familiar with, with uh, Genesis chapter six, the uh Benayi Elohim, the fallen angels, have procreate with the daughters of man, and in Peter, they're chained up in Tartarus, the abyss. This is what I'm talking about, all these hyperlinks. So these things should be, all these verses should be popping out in your mind when you're reading this, right? Oh, yeah, there. Oh, that's the abyss. That's where the Benai Elohim are, that's the chained up in Tartarus. That's what Peter said, right? That's, anyway, when he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace and the sunlight and the air turned dark from smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given the power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And this is where the question comes from. They were told to kill them, not to kill them, but to torture them for five months. And five months is the livestock of a locust. Five months with pain like pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, what's one of the rules? One of the rules is that it's full of Old Testament symbols that are not meant to be taken literally. So when we're reading this passage, what comes to mind? Right? I know what you're thinking. The plagues in Egypt. The locusts. The plagues, riffing of that. And if, you, if, and if you, anybody read the book of, uh, of Joel, the prophet in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2 describes this exact thing, Joel, Book of Joel, as well as Second Temple literature, like the Book of Enoch, like uh, Jubilees, um, Baruch, if you're familiar with well, Second Temple literature. So all of these are just, are just being thrown at you and, and you've got to give interpretation. Of, what does this all mean? What, is, what does all this mean? And, and, and In short, in short, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, but the words you speak come from your heart. The words you speak come from your heart. That's what defiles you. What defiles you comes from your heart. For from the heart came evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. You know, humans, we were made to reflect the goodness of God. But because we rejected God, instead of trusting in His wisdom of what is good and evil, we decided to redefine it for ourselves. No one's going to tell me because my truth is God. My truth. And because of that, our heart is now full of rebellion, filth, and slander, and wickedness. This is, this is what Jesus says. Out of the heart comes these things, right? Out of this this like this pit comes out all these things. But also, let me ask you another question. Who's giving the order here to torture? The torture? Because this passage, it doesn't say God is giving the order. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, when you read on to verse 11, it says they have a king. These demonic, benign Elohim, locust, horse-looking things have their own king. Revelations nine eleven. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit, from the abyss, from Tartarus. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the Destroyer. Now, is he giving the orders to torture? Because what when you read Revelations, you you, you know that these beasts—one comes out of the sea, one comes out of the ground. It's, its power comes from the dragon, which is the serpent, the old devil, the slanderer. He gives it the power. These beasts that represent human human kingdoms, right? And so, so, so. This dragon gives it, the serpent gives it its power. So who's giving the orders? Who gives it its power? Another thing to keep in mind as we're reading this passage. But let's go back to verse 5. They were told not to kill them, but to torture. For me, this speaks of the grace of God. The grace of giving people an opportunity to come back to him. Come back to him. How how do do I, where do I get this from? I get this from from what it says in verse 20, verse 21, uh, where, where, where God's waiting for them to repent, to come back to him. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual morality or their thefts. That's verse 21. So even when God hands us over to our desires, hands us over to what we want, which is not him, hands us over to us, he gives us an opportunity to repent and come back to him. Come back to him. His arms are always open. You can be tortured by living with the consequences of your past or you can be set free by Jesus. say that again. You can be tortured by living with the consequences of your past, or you can be set free from Jesus. See, the choice is always yours. Because, you know, we've all done things that I wish I could change. I wish I can go back and change those. I wish those words that I said, I wish I can grab those words and put them back in my mouth. We've all done and said things that we regret it. But we can't go back and change our past. But Jesus can. He can go back into the past, wipe the slate clean, and give you a new heart. Give you a new heart, because from this abyss comes these things. Now, for the ancient reader, like if you imagine living during that time under the thumb of Rome, living under the thumb of Rome, everyone you know has been killed. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem's been destroyed. You uh, you can think that oh my gosh, Rome has the final say. Then you read the Book of Revelation. And it's like, in Revelation, it reveals what's really going on spiritually. Have you guys seen the movie, the program, Stranger Things? What's really going on behind the scenes? That Rome gets its power from the beast. And you know what? Rome doesn't have the final say. The beast, the dragon, doesn't have the final say. But it's about, but God has the final say. It's about the new Jerusalem, the new creation. And if, if you're living in that time, that gives you so much hope that I will rise again in his kingdom. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. And that's the truth that Revelation reveals. Anyway, that's, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> let's get to, let's get to uh, the third question. I'll, I'll speed up. Why does God give us temptations? Why does God give us temptation? Well, the Bible was specifically the New Testament. It teaches that God doesn't tempt people to sin. In fact, James chapter 1 verse 13 directly addresses this. This is what it says in James chapter 1 verse 13. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires. Where does temptation come from? From our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. So God is not the source of temptation. Rather, temptation arises. From our own desires. And what did, where does Jesus say that comes from? From out of the heart. From the heart, our mouth speaks. And you can see why I'm tying all these together. These are all tying together that you know I, I, that I've got the power to choose. I'm, I, I, I'm rejecting these, these curses. I've got the power to choose. And I'm going to glorify God in my life. And I'm not going to allow my past to torture me. But I'm going to be set free by the power of Jesus. And, and that's why Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and don't let us yield to temptation. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this prayer acknowledges that we can't do it without the help of God. We can't do this alone. We can't try to control all the things, but we need someone who is outside of us, outside of us, and when we get into scripture, and get into who God is, when we can't do it alone, we're better together. What does James say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be not forgiven of your sins, so that you may be healed. James 5 teaches us that we confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. Because if I hold it into myself, I'm weakened. But I'm, when I get a, a surrounded with some brethren and a connect group and with a band of brothers or sisters, and, and I begin to share what's going on in my life, I find freedom and I begin to get healed. That's why we, we encourage people to be part of a connect group because that's when we find freedom. Because we can't do this on our own. We can't do this outside. Uh, we, we need help from the outside. and, and we can, well, That's why God said, pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That I need to be, part, I need, I need to be with you, God, and I need to be with a community of believers. So therefore, according to the Bible, God does not tempt people to sin and individuals are encouraged to see God's guidance to avoid falling into temptation. Amen. Okay, let's get to number four, getting there. Coming to to the end. Will Jesus help to make me see my lost mom who did not know Jesus before she died? I've been praying for his mercy. You know, when I read this question, I can feel the heartbreak. And this question, will Jesus help, help to make me see my lost mom who did not know Jesus before she died? I've been praying for his mercy. And I think we can all relate to this question. We all know someone who we love dearly, who, who, who died without knowing Jesus. And it breaks our heart. And, and it's hard to see. I can't really answer this. I don't know on the other side. But what I do know is that the kingdom of God is given to us as a gift We can choose to step into the kingdom. How do we choose by stepping into the kingdom? By receiving the king, that's Jesus. Or we can refuse to enter his kingdom. But what I do know is that the feeling that we have, this heart, that breaks our heart, this feeling that this anguish that we have inside, I do know this, that God has the same anguish. He has the same pain. Exactly how you feel, God feels exactly the same. God loved you so much that he couldn't, live without you. So He laid down His life and He died for you. That he, this is why He stepped into His creation and He clothed Himself in flesh in the fullness of Jesus and on the cross He took upon Himself the suffering, the pain, the consequences of our sin into His body and on the He handed Himself over to dying. Three days later He conquered sin and death and rose again and is ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And everyone who receives this gift We'll also one day, when we we have our last breath, we open up our eyes and we're in the kingdom of God because we received this gift. Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this For it is by the grace you you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, something that's outside of us. This gift that was given to us. And that's why I've kind of collated these questions together. It's because God doesn't want you to suffer. And that's, that's what this means for us today. This is what these questions, well, this is something that I really want to relate to that God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't curse you, God doesn't tempt you, God doesn't want you to go to hell. But what he's not gonna do, he's not gonna force you to love him. I, I get asked that question all the time. Why does just God make us love him? That's not love. If I force someone to love me, is that love? That's not love at all. How do you get love? Free will. When God gave us free will, he knew. And and, and it was a risk to God. But this is free will. This is what love is. It's freely given. And by giving us his love, he gave us free will that we can choose. He's not going to force us to love him because that's not love. He loves you too much for him to do that. But you need to decide. You need to come to the decision about, in fact, somebody said this, that Jesus is a man that you cannot ignore. You can ignore him as a liar. You can dismiss him as a lunatic or you can serve him as the Lord. The choice is always yours. You know, we just had Christmas and open up all these presents. But what I want you to imagine is, who is it that you love so deeply? Who is that person? Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your... Your kids? Is it just one of your kids? <laughs> no, just kidding. All your kids? Depends what, what week it is. Yeah, whether they love them or not. Think of the person that you love so much. Imagine that you're like, you know what? We've had Christmas. I, I love this, this person so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this gift. But this gift is going to cost a lot of money. And I can't afford this gift on my wage. So you make a decision that you're going to do some extra hours, maybe get another job. And, and you're like, you know what? This sacrifice... It's worth it because of how much you love this person. Now the end of year comes and it's like, and it's like, man, you saved up enough. You buy this gift and you're excited. You can't wait for them to get this gift because you know, you've sacrificed so much for it. And you know it's gonna love them. You know it's gonna benefit them. And you, you get it, you wrap it up in the nicest present. You put it underneath the tree. And then Christmas comes and they walk in. You go, hey, Merry Christmas. And they go, hey, look, I've got something for you. Right here, it's It's a gift. Imagine them walking in, they're looking at your gift. And they go to you, I, I don't want your gift. And you're like, Well, hey, what do you mean? This, this is from me. I, I've sacrificed for this gift. You, you're going to love this. this it's going to benefit you. This is, and, they go, and they say, No, I, I don't want your gift. And they walk out and slam the door behind you, behind them. Now, what would you feel? You'll be like, You know what? You want a <laughs> What the hell would you feel? Devastated. Man, I'll be crying because they did not just reject your gift, they rejected you. And that's exactly how God feels. He lays down his life, sacrifices himself and he offers a gift to humanity as a free gift. See, so this is for you. This is for you. It's good life. I paid the consequences for your sin. I did that for you so that you can be free and like any gift, you can choose to receive it or reject it. Every person that rejects this gift, it breaks God's heart. It breaks his heart. But imagine that love the person you love so much received this gift. How would you feel? You'll be like, you know what, what, what gives you joy for me is when I give gifts to my kids. Is I love seeing the, the expressions on their face, especially when, they, when they're younger. These days it's like, <laughs> when they're younger, I've seen the joy on their eyes light up and it's like, it, it just warms my heart. In fact, Jesus says this. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents. There's rejoicing, there's praising. God is over the moon that his son and his daughter has come home to him. And He says, angels, break out the good stuff. There's a party in heaven. Even right here, right now, you could be a party starter in heaven by receiving the King, receiving this gift. See, God's not gonna force you to love Him. He loves you too much to do that. But God always keeps His arms open for you to come home. It's time to come home. You can ignore Him as a liar, Dismiss Him as a lunatic or you can serve Him as the Lord. The choice is always yours. Come on, let us pray.